I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. I hope all is well. Welcome to episode 94 of the Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with writer, speaker, and will advocate Claire Parks. Clara is known for her popular website, The Knitter's Review, as well as for the amazing books that she's published, such as Knitlandia, A Knitter Sees the World, and The Yarn Whisperer, My Unexpected Life in Knitting. In our conversation, we talk about her most recent publication, Vanishing Fleece, Adventures in American Wool. In the book, she chronicalizes her year-long exploration traveling to farms and mills across America in order to transform a 676-pound bale of fleece into yarn. Hey, Clara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background and how you developed a passion for wool and knitting? Yeah, so my name is Clara Parks, and... I am an author and yarn critic, which doesn't really exist as a career. I kind of made it up for myself starting in 2000. And I've had a passion for wool since uh, since I first hugged my grandma. She was always wearing an Icelandic wool sweater. And that touch has always just meant home to me. So as a writer, that's where I've been focusing. And that's kind of the heart of the advocacy work that I do now to try to get other people to understand the merits and value and beautiful stories behind that fiber. That is really beautiful. Can you talk about what you mean when you say yarn critic? Um, Can you go more into depth about what that means to you and (laughs) and sort of how you you coined the term? Yeah, I I coined it sort of jokingly, but I realized like, wait, that's actually what I do. So in 2000, I launched an online knitting magazine. And I'm not a designer. That's not my expertise. But I am. um, I have an art history background. And then I was in tech publishing. And my focus there was running product reviews. And I realized that there's a whole world like this was in 2000 when we were starting to find yarn available online and we were buying without being able to touch it. And I realized there was a a need for somebody who could be your eyes and your fingers and your nose and try these yarns that are coming out and tell you kind of point you in the direction of how does this one work up? How, what is the skein like? Are there knots in it? Um, does it snag? Is it good for particular techniques? How does it wash up? Does it bleed? Does it shrink? And then I would flog my swatches. I would give them artificial abrasion just to figure out like at what point do they break? And then I would tell people about this. And I did this every week for about 15 years and then I went every other week and now it's more sporadic than that but that's that's how we got into it that's super interesting 
You also mentioned that you're an author as well. And I was actually sent your book from one of my coworkers here at Just Yarn, Christine. And the title of the book is Vanishing Fleece, Adventures in American Wool. And I haven't finished it, but I have got halfway through. And it's a really, really beautiful and interesting story. And it's about you embarking on a cross-country adventure, transforming a 676-pound bale of wool into commercial yarn. And I'm just, you know, wondering if you can talk about what sparked your curiosity to complete this project and how you got into the writing aspect of it. Like what made you go, oh, I want to like complete this process and see where it takes me and be willing to embark on such a unknown journey. You know, you never really know where you're going. And then how did you have the sort of insight to say, I'm going to write, I'm going to put this in a book. I think there was a bit of naive foolishness and optimism, which is a really good thing. Like <laughs> sometimes if we, if we, you know, if you don't know how difficult it is or what your dangers are, you're like, sure. Um, but I, it, it entered my life. I had been reviewing yarn weekly for 12 years at that point. And I was starting to feel kind of jaded. I was starting to see how I could cheat and like, I didn't, you know, like puffing on my cigarette, like, oh, I don't need to knit this yarn. I know what it'll do. And uh, I thought, no, 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 this, this isn't right. This doesn't feel good. And different people had approached me about making yarn, but it was always, you know, make, we'll put your name on this label and you'll get a small percent of the yarn and wouldn't that be great? But it, it never really felt right. But it was uh, when my friend Eugene Wyatt, who had a, who he, he ran and it still exists, Catskill Merino, just north of New York City. He had a bale of scoured Saxon Merino that he was, how do you describe it? He had an extra bale and he normally never ever parted with his wool, but he knew that I was kind of professionally bored and he like, you know, is there something you could do with it? Can you come up with a project around it? Or I don't know, he just, he, put it out there for me. And I just suddenly saw how I could slip through the slapping my name on a yarn label temptation and do something of actual value, which would be, okay, I'm going to, I will buy this bale and I can use this to go into the mills where I couldn't get as a, as a reviewer and work with these people in a totally different way than, you know, I'm a bad person who's coming in to point things out and make you feel bad about your products, which is not what I do, but that's how I felt. Um, and I was also wanting to kind of um, grow my own knowledge because, I, you know, after 12 years of doing something, I was starting to worry, like, am I that restaurant critic who can't even make toast at home, you know, but is really snobby about other places. So, um, so it, and it, it, I don't know, the whole thing just kind of came to me that I could open this up to other people and that's how I could fund it. And I made a promise that like, we would go through this adventure together. I would give you reports you would get pictures, you would get videos, a uh, certain group of people, they would actually get the yarn. And the one caveat was that I would be brutally honest. Like if I made a mistake, 
we're all in this together. And that's kind of how it didn't feel so terrifying and daunting because I had just promised total transparency. I wasn't going to try to just put fluff all over everything. So um, in 2013, I began January 1st to take that bail and figure out, okay, how, how did it come off the sheep? How did it get washed? Where? And just walk through the steps of how we make yarn in this country and see what that world is like from the inside. Hmm. It's really interesting to hear you kind of talk about the, I guess, sort of pressures of working as a creative. And, you know, it sounds like you're pointing to authenticity. And I think it's, it's so beautiful to hear you kind of talk about how you found yourself in this space of wanting to dig deeper and wanting to sort of contextualize these yarns that you've been working with for over a decade. And I'm curious about some of the discoveries that you made on the journey. Can you speak to some of the people that you have come across and in the places that you've been? Yeah, I I appreciate you saying that about the authenticity. I guess that's as in the creative world, it always is really challenging, isn't it? To balance, like we need to be able to eat and have a home, but yet at the same time, we need to stay true to kind of our core. So anyway, I just wanted to raise my hands and say, yeah, (laughs) that is a challenge. But um, I think the neatest thing that I discovered, and that's what drove me to actually write the book, was the people who are doing this. I kind of had this thought that it was this huge and kind of daunting industry, right? Because I'd I'd worked in high-tech publishing, so my reference point was like IBM or Microsoft or Oracle, these big impenetrable companies. But the wool world in the United States is very, very, very small. And the people are, generally speaking, so kind and open and eager to share their story and eager. I was stunned at how how eager people were to help me on my way. It, it, I really did not expect that. <clears throat> and like they were curious. Another neat thing was at each mill that I went to, uh, and I went to four mills total, they, they all wanted to like, where else are you going? Ooh, I wonder what their stuff is like. And oh, I hear they have an air splicer. Ooh, let me know what that's like. Like they were equally curious about what the other people were doing. And for most of them, I'm trying to think, all of them, it was a family business. It's not, we're not talking, there is no big wool. There's no like multinational corporation. There's one of the biggest mills, but I didn't go to that one. These were all family businesses. And they had faced really, really difficult choices and economic challenges and had made hard decisions, but managed to still be here. And it was, it was humbling and it was so inspiring. And that, that's what I ended up feeling like I have to share this with people. It's, it's too beautiful just to, to hold to myself. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of history of the American wool industry and how it's changed over the years? Yeah. So 
it's um it's hard not to read kind of like a horror story <laughs> or but that's not like no this is this is the world and change is constant so so wool used to be a very big deal in the united states as recently as the 1940s the u.s was the fifth largest wool producer in the world and part of that as i was doing my research i discovered um like wool has always been a very political topic in this country back into the 1800s you can find all these transcripts from these big meetings you know where all these white men came together and said we must protect our industry and like um <laughs> tariffs were a really big deal and we can't let those french get our wool but like all the way, like hundreds of years ago, frighteningly similar conversations to what we're having today about, you know, what do you do if somebody wants to bring in wool that's 10 cents on the dollar to what we have? How do you protect and can you and, and should you? So so anyway, that was that's just um, kind of an interesting side note on that. But um, one of the things that kept us such a high producer was that there was a wool subsidy that farmers were getting and there was no correlation between the money that you got and the quality of your wool so when the wool subsidy finally went away and i'm trying to remember it was like in the 90s i'm going to get that date wrong but it was a huge shock to generations of farmers who suddenly Oh, you mean I have to actually sell this on the open market based on its quality? And they weren't getting anything for it. And so that's one of the reasons that we fell. Um, that was a big one. And another thing, just like today, the U.S. produces, I want to say, less than 1% of what of the wool that's in the world. And wool itself represents about like 1.5, 1.6% of all textile fibers that we use. It's primarily over 60% is synthetics. It's synthetics have taken over even cotton. So um, it's part of a bigger kind of decline in our use of wool related to post-World War II, related to, you know, new miracle fibers that are easier to care for. All you need is this Westinghouse washing machine now available. You know, like it's just, it all kind of feeds together. Um, so it's it's a shadow of what it once was. However, it's I think it's really important to acknowledge that it's it's a strong and beautiful shadow. It's not this isn't like ruin porn. I don't mean to convey that. Like there is still something here and it's beautiful and it's worth supporting. There you go. There's the decline of wool <laughs> in five minutes flat. I've just gone over several hundred years. Just hear the sound of something going, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear to hear you talk about this because um, a few weeks ago I spoke with a farmer uh, near Asheville in North Carolina. She raises the Navajo churro um, heritage breed. Yum! And yeah. her whole philosophy is sort of based on the history and the fact that the American government basically slaughtered that entire breed yep. because they wanted to cut off the economic system for um, the Navajo people. Mm -hmm. And so there is like a very, very, very rich and deep history 
as it pertains to war in this country. And it's super interesting to sort of think about that history and also how we've kind of, um, as a society, advanced technologically and to also see how still it has been really difficult to kind of support these systems. Can you speak to the steps that it takes or that it took for you to take your bail into creating commercially viable yarn? Yeah, so um, I had I had the ad- advantage of my bale had already been scoured and was a bale and it was in the scouring plant. But I just to make sure that we were all on the same page and we we're all witnessing this together, I first went to the farm and watched the shearing take place. So that takes place every spring, a couple weeks before lambing. And um, so I was there for shearing and all the wool was bundled up. And in theory, it would have been sent to, it needs to be cleaned, right? Because like more than 50% of what's in there is just dirt and grease. So it, we went to Texas to one of the two remaining commercial scale scouring plants in the United States. And... Um, watched like who opens these bales right what kind of equipment are they using how much water does this equipment take and uh what is their business like now versus 10 years ago and how you know some of that wasn't global economics it was the fact that there was a severe drought in texas and that just cut their business but anyway so um after you're scouring it you really have about half of what you had going in that wool is bailed up. And then from there you have to pick, how do I want this yarn to be spun? Do I want it to be spun woolen? Do I want it to be spun semi-worsted? Do I want it to be genuine worsted, like combed and fully processed? Because that will dictate which mill you go to. That was one of the other big surprises. I sort of thought that mills were like, uh, you know, KitchenAid attachments, like they could do everything. (laughs) And they can't, they're like, each one is really calibrated to do one thing. And they like to have a lot of wool to practice on before getting absolutely right what they give you. And in this case, I was saying, here's a hundred pounds. You can't practice on it. This is all I have for you. And oh, by the way, there are about a thousand people who are going to be watching. So if you mess up, (laughs) guess what? We're all going to know. Um, which I didn't realize was kind of a crazy proposition, but, um, so you pick the mill and you send it to the mill and then they have to pop open the bale, or in my case, to divvy up the mill, the the stuff and send it to the mills. I popped it open, which is an athletic enterprise. That's a bit scary because there are these wires holding these fibers in place and they are under immense pressure. So when you cut the wires, they make a loud boom and, you know, you have to wear protective gear. Um, who knew that there were dangers in working with wool? But um, they would open up the bale and you run it through a series of mixers and blenders and then through a carding machine to open up the fibers. And then depending on how you're going to process it, it can go a bunch of different ways. Um, But you ultimately end up with spinning yarn, at which point you have one strand of spun yarn and you still have to decide do I just want to use this one? Do I want to ply two together? Do I want to have three plied together? And making it harder, the nomenclature that mills use, it tends to be totally different than what 
we use, or at least in the spinning and knitting world, and perhaps in weaving. So like plies, they, they call it a twister, the machine that twists strands together. It's not at all about plying. And in our world, we would think a twister is like for spinning the yarn, right? <laughs> so that's a little bit of like confusion talking to them. But um, then you're left with this yarn that is, once you figured out how many strands you want and it's been plied together and twisted and it's on a cone, if you're a weaver, you can just go straight from there. That's one of the beautiful things about weaving. Um, but if you want to do anything else, it needs to come off that cone and be washed, right? And put in skeins and dyed. Uh, and so we even went through, I worked with a natural dyer, Christine Vehar of A Verb for Keeping Warm. And then I worked with a hand dyer because in the knitting world, hand dyers are like, that's a really, really important segment. And then I went with a large dye house and just a, like how vulnerable this whole chain is. The dye house that I worked with is now closed. Like it, it, it already has, is no longer with us. It's, um, <sighs> wah, wah, wah. But, um, so then you have your dyed yarn and that's when the really fun part comes in where we each get to write our own story with the yarn, right? Through our looms, through our needles, however we want to do it. Mm. And and how long did this process take from start to finish? <laughs> I had thought, uh, I thought, ah, six months, that should really cover it. And I also thought I could do six yarns and uh, my friend Pam Allen just laughed and laughed. <laughs> okay. If she's laughing, that's not good. So I had thought it would take six months, but it took a full year because mills work in a totally different time system than the rest of the world. Like it can be um, nine months before they can get to your yarn or tomorrow. Like, and there's, so you just have to kind of surrender to it. And that means for me, it took a year from start to finish to get it all done and to kind of learn what we could and draw the conclusions that we could from it. It was a full 12 months. Wow. Well, it sounds like you enjoyed and, and learned a lot during that 12 months. So super exciting. I did. There's so much more to learn. That's the fun part. It, it never, like, just when you think you know everything, somebody will tell you, like, you know, they're making machine washable wool with plasma. Like, what? <laughs> you start from scratch again and again, but it's just so much fun. There's so much out there to learn. You never get bored. Yeah. So you've kind of pointed to a lot of the ways in which these mills have closed down over the years. You know, you mentioned that there's only two mills that will, I believe you said, create schemes in Texas, in, in, in all of the United States. And I'm kind of curious um, as to what you think of uh, the industry today. Like, do you see the industry was resurging into its original self or having an inventive future to come? I don't think it will ever be what it once was. Um, we have maybe 
like commercial scale mills, I want to say maybe eight or nine in the U.S. And then we have those two larger scouring plants and smaller scale stuff for the kind of the boutique craft industry, which is actually becoming economically important. But I, I really don't think it will ever return to what it was. However, I think there is still great potential. And I think anything that there is, I mean, it, it's just that you won't have the mill town that employs 10,000 people. You can have a really technologically advanced mill that employs 13 people and still produces a great quantity of materials. I think using modern equipment and more streamlined processes, we can begin to compete and bring things back, the whole onshoring phenomenon. And I would really, really, really love to see that happen because it's just, I feel like there's something kind of spiritually wrong with losing the ability to make your own fabric to clothe yourself, right? It's, it's like losing your ability to produce your own food. It's, it's uh, not, not on a, like, I'm not trying to be all nationalistic, but I just mean kind of spiritually when you relinquish that completely, there's, there's a disconnect and it can be so much more meaningful when you bring it closer to your own experience. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I, I hope <laughs> that we will see more, you know, domestic fabrics returning and more domestic production. And, and there is a little bit, you have uh, Rambler's Way, you have Vormi in Colorado, you have uh, Duckworth Clothing Company, Pendleton is doing some stuff still in the United States, uh, Farm to Feet is doing socks, completely sourced from start to finish here. Um, darn tough is doing socks in the U.S. So there are there are people doing the work, um, and the American Woolen Company that brand was restarted and is going gangbusters, and they really have a good vision for how to carry this forward. So there is there is hope. There will be something. It won't be what it was, but I think there's great potential. Thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> well, anytime, anytime. <laughs> well, it's just like, it's, it's such a, it's, I guess it's very refreshing to hear you kind of have a positive outlook or to see that there is for one, something very viable within the smaller textile collectives that are working because it does create a much more productive ecosystem in that farmers, mill owners, and customers are more in touch with each other and, and can create those connections and really put meaning behind being customers and purchasing and support and supporting ecosystems. Um, I do think that, you know, when you think about the past and the industrial revolution and like the idea of providing 10,000 jobs to a town, you know, based on a mill, when you think about those things in our current system, just, just in, in the world in general, so much has changed. It, it's difficult to even find people who would want to work those jobs as well. And so that's also something that is really important. And so it's really nice to hear you kind of talk about like the 
prospects for the future in, you know, introducing modern technology and and working smaller. And I'm also um, really curious about how you're able to sustain your practice. How are you able to foster sustainability and, and to continue writing and to continue making and potentially what have been some of the challenges in this project and in maintaining other projects that you have and that you are creating in the future? I think the biggest challenge for me or the biggest turning point has been that I began as a reviewer of yarns like every single week. I I didn't believe in spreading negativity. Like there's too much good that deserves to have light shined on it that I didn't want to spend time you know, this yarn is terrible. I hate it. Like, so, so it was basically like me falling in love with stuff every single week. (laughs) And, um, over time I've been, I've just felt like one of the ways in which I've been becoming more mindful of sustainability is in being more mindful of when I write about something and what I say and who am I really, um, supporting here. And I don't want to support just rampant capitalism as much as like, okay, here is something that is really, really special. And I get that your money is limited and time is limited and we're not about fast fashion here. So if you're going to make six yarn purchases a year, here's one to consider. So for me personally, just in my writing practice, slowing way, way down in what I put out there to kind of encourage that message of let's be a lot more mindful of how much we consume. Cause I know for a lot of people and myself included, especially early on, I was acquiring far more than I was producing. <laughs> right. Um, and so just trying to slow that down a little bit. Um, and also, just reminding people that any purchase that we make is a vote for something. And so like that is one of our powers. So be really, really mindful of it and use it to support and vote for those companies or those people or those groups, like the, all the fiber shed stuff that's going on, like groups that you feel are moving us forward in a positive direction and let's just slow down the the just rampant amassing of stuff. I, I don't know about you, but I've kind of I kind of reached my limit <laughs> a couple of years ago. <laughs> so um gotta slow that down a little bit. Yeah, I agree, and I've definitely slowed down quite a bit um over the past couple years as I've gone into my own and started my own practice, I really had to question a lot of my own ethics and stance on things. So I completely understand. Right. It really is like, yeah. And, and because you work so intimately with these materials, it's, Mm -hmm. it's not just like, well, I know that this can of soup is made by a company that isn't really great, but whatever. But this is like, this is something I'm going to be holding and working with and living with on my body for years. Do I really want that in my, in my life? It's a much deeper connection don't you think. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And it's, you know, when it comes down to it, being that I am farming, I do, now that I have done so, I do kind of look at my cotton and my indigo and I go, so how how much is this, you know, how much could I really charge for this? You know, or, or what is the true cost? You know, what has been my actual contribution? And so when you start to have those questions, then you kind of start to think about, okay, so how do I want to bring this to a market? And and what are the ethics? What's the message? How do I want to communicate this to people? And it is it is a bit more difficult to think in that way and, and to be conscious. It's also, as you were saying earlier, it has a lot to do with just the spirit of it all. When you were saying that not being close to or not having access to handmade or self-made textile systems, it, it changes the spirit of the clothes that you wear. And, you know, I absolutely yeah. agree with that. Yeah. And also just like I've always said that, that yarn holds energy. Like you could be woo-woo about it, but it's also literal energy from the twist to the stitches to the the manufacturing of goods and and are you wearing something that was made by a human being who was being exploited and who is afraid and in stress like oh that's a that's a really heavy thing to look at and how how can i better help these people and not contribute to a system that is exploiting just in a really really hard way and then the other side of it what just what you were saying about how much can i charge for something and what value have I added to it? I also get really worried when I see bigger companies coming in and I'm talking like really big, like catalog companies and they're starting to try to use the same language, but you know that it's not exactly, you know, let's say this was artisan made and indigo dyed or, but I just like, Oh, you're not paying those people like, Oh, don't use, don't dilute that language for capitalistic purposes or, you know, I'm not sure I can ever express that very well, but I'm always so wary of kind of um, the goodness and the trust that we're putting in people who are doing good stuff, getting diluted by companies that come in and see money in it and like, Oh, cool. Okay. We'll just slap a label on here that says curated artisan. That's a good word. Yeah. Let's put that on there. That then, people who are really doing hard work can't charge what it's really worth if over on catalog company XYZ, they're selling it for 50 bucks less. I don't know if I'm making sense there, but that's that's a dilemma that I sit with a lot right now. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And that's the reality. Um, I call it greenwashing or a lot of people call Mm. it greenwashing, but it's like when companies, they will like take something and then they'll make the packaging, you know, brown and then they'll use a particular looking text and then they'll use words like ethnically sourced or they'll put non-GMO on something that doesn't even have a GMO variety. (laughs) It's like cholesterol free water. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, and I've definitely seen that as people have become more informed about these textile systems and have been putting more pressure on these companies to really, like, create ethically and and sustainably. They've created whole teams that focus on sustainability 
And they're more concerned with communicating to their customer that they are sustainable as opposed to being sustainable businesses. And so I think it's really, really, really important that those of us who are working in these really small ways continue on and, and, you know, not be discouraged by the fact that we, we see this happening and, you know, eventually it'll take time. But if there's anything that I've learned in doing this podcast is that there's so many people who are doing the work in my mind, eventually we'll all like meet each other and then we'll have, (laughs) you know, A, a big pool that is as powerful as these companies and, and, you know, we can sustain on our own. And so, mm. yeah. Beautiful. I I will hold on to that vision. I really will. As I'm doing daily battle with the, the vendors on Instagram who are selling their cashmere sweatpants, like, and then only on the third page you get to like, how can these sweatpants be cashmere? Well, oh, man-made cashmere. Like, oh, <laughs> Wow. I didn't even know that there was a such thing. Wow. And like they'll say, you know, like fleece, wool fleece, sheep's wool, lamb's wool. And then you go into the third page and it's ethical lamb's wool. Like, uh oh, mm, what do you mean here? And then it's man-made. Right. And it's, it's polyester. That's, that's the latest thing. The greenwashing of polyester by calling it everything else. And then just adding like animal friendly or like, how is plastic oh. friendly to animals? Anyway, <laughs> ah! but fortunately, we're getting like the general public is getting smarter, and consumers like I go on there to post something, and I'll see other people saying, "No, this isn't this isn't cashmere. This is polyester. What are you doing?" So, I think your work is helping the work that we're doing of just raising awareness. Like people are getting there. So hopefully, that world that you see where we all finally come together. It's not too far in the future, I hope. Same. <laughs> and on the topic of features, do you have any new projects or um, past projects that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, at this moment, I'm, I'm working on a different form of storytelling around the world of wool. And there's not too much more that I can say about it. But I can say that... Um, in January, the audiobook for Vanishing Fleece will come out. And I'm excited about that because they let me read it. So it's always like a dream to be able to deliver your words as you heard them in your head. So I'm pretty excited about that. That is super exciting. I'll have to make sure when you put that out that we can link it in the show notes so people can also have access to that as well. I would be very grateful. Thank you. No problem. And where can people go on social media or the internet to follow your work? I'm on Instagram, Clara Parks. And you can also uh, find me on Twitter, Clara Parks. (laughs) Um, But uh, Instagram is where I do most of my storytelling these days. Uh, You can also go to knittersreview.com if you just want to read kind of the deeper base of archives of the yarns that I've written about and fibers and yarn manufacturing and needles and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of where I dwell right now. Awesome. And before you go, we have a question that we ask everyone that joins the podcast. And that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Advice and words of wisdom, I would say um, 
always remember the love and the joy that you feel in this. And the minute you feel a sense of weightiness or duty or obligation or, you know, I got to make five more of these before January, um, step aside because it's a very precious energy that you're working with. And uh, it shouldn't be abused because it can go away. So really value that spark of creativity and that spark of love that you feel and um, tend to it well and it will carry you through your whole life. Amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. That's a wrap. If you're interested in purchasing one of Claire's books or visiting her website, you can find links in the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode 94. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Clara. So stay tuned for next week's amazing episode. And until next time, happy weaving. Happy weaving.